Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and stability in this week. We're coming at you with a brand new episode, and we're going to be talking about the brand new album from podcast darling band, the Australian rock band Gang of Youths have released their, is it their third? Third Mm -hmm. album? Third album. Angel in Real Time, one of the most anticipated albums of the year from every member of this podcast, uh, uh, Sans August, RIP. Uh, not with us this week, but to make up for that, we have called in his Nebraskan replacement. Uh, we have Connor with us this week. Yay. Wonderful. And one that actually likes uh, his band. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. That's, you know, typically yeah. that's, that, that, that's a little bit more uh, constructive when it comes to criticism. And uh, we're going to be talking about just that album in the main episode this week because there's a lot to get into, but that does not mean that we have a shortage of things to talk about this week. We are also going to be discussing 30 years of Faith No More's album, fucking Angel Angel Dust. I don't know why I didn't remember that. We're talking about Faith No More's Angel Dust, another act that's, you know, Mike Patton, very tied close to the DNA of this podcast. So about time we covered something like that, damn it. Yeah. On the channel this week, we have a couple new videos other than our last main episode. Uh, Riley and I did two videos. We did a video celebrating the anniversary of two folk rock classics, talking about the Mountain Goats album, All Hail West Texas, and Nick Drake's Pink Moon, two absolutely seminal, essential records that we dived into, talked about the artists, the history, uh, the legacy, the albums, the songs themselves. It was some good shit. So go check that out if you haven't. Between like those two and when we did Big Thief um, last Sunday, like it, it was very much inadvertently turned into a kind of like folk week for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all, all three of those records are absolutely fucking fantastic. So yeah. that's basically what's been happening on the channel lately. But uh, before we get into our new review, and before we even get into our what we've been listening to, we have one special thing to announce, which is that former podcast member Sersha has just released her new EP, No One Achieves Their Dreams, which you can now listen to stream for free, or you can purchase on Bandcamp. We will put a link to it in the description below. It sees oh, Sersha continuing to expand the reaches of her sound we reviewed her debut full-length record i mean just about this time one year ago and so it's great to have her back with new music go and check that out but before we get into our main event today let's talk about what we have been listening to for the last seven days jake what have you been listening to all right well i i guess as is customary for the year 2022 we have to throw on the chopping block of jake's segments we have to talk about black sabbath And so this past week, I made it through, I'm trying to take on multiple records this time, just because this last leg of the discography is really just chapping my ass. So I went through three albums. I went through Tear and Headless Cross. Um, I have nothing notable to say about those other two, those albums, because they are precisely as good and also as mostly inessential as the albums that I talked about before in very similar ways. They're superficially different. Tear has some like Vikingy shit in it, but it's like not that 
different like i mean it's it's like when fucking uh the the bathory started doing like viking metal and it's just like it's like the same shit it's just like a little different but and those two albums are fine they're good they're they're completely consumable but the the real main thing i got to was the the often put uh down cross purposes uh, which has a uh, rather meager um, rate your music rating. So naturally, I was really looking forward to listening to this shit. And it's fine. Like, it, it is definitely the worst album since Born Again. But that's not a slight against it, really. It's really just that it's less than, it's less than good. Just because it's very much the same fundamentals, kind of dated, cheesy, heavy metal shit that they've been doing, regardless of whoever the front man is. And really, the problem here is just that all the songs are just weirdly languid. Like, the, the, none of these songs need to be longer than four or five minutes, and like, more than half of them are, and I don't know why. But then again, I look at the rating and I'm just like, why do you all hate this one in particular? It's not different enough from the other ones. I don't... I don't get it. It's longer, sure. It's why other albums like fucking, I don't know, The Eternal Idol are better because it's like 36 minutes. But like the Black Sabbath fandom's fucking weird, man. I I, I don't understand you people. But uh, next on next I've got Forbidden, which is supposedly the worst Black Sabbath album. I guess to fulfill my listening to bad, questionably sounding metal this week, I'm going to say a sentence I never thought I was ever going to say, and that is, I got the inclination to listen to Rob Zombie this week. I don't know why. I, 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 think, it's, I think it's because I've just been thinking about The Matrix a lot, and that uh, the film... <laughs> That film memorably has Rob Zombie's Dracula playing in the nightclub in the beginning of the first Matrix movie. And I won't lie, I kind of think Dracula slaps. And I'm just like, you know, I wonder the album that's from, wonder what that's like. And I looked it up and it was just like, oh, okay, this has decent-ish ratings. I'll I'll take a I'll take a listen to this. It's it's bad. It's bad. It's really bad. Like, not only is Dragula, like, really the only worthwhile thing on there, it's like, god damn, this thing is not even 40 minutes long. It is humorously titled Hellbilly Deluxe. It's not a deluxe edition. It's, it's less than 40 minutes long, and it has, like, three interludes, and all of them are nothing. And the whole album is just, like... Like, like, Dracula is a weird song, right? Like, it's, like, early, like, skinny puppy slash proto Nine Inch Nails style industrial rock and, like, techno. And you think I would, that would, I would be... say, I would say it's closest to, like, ministry around yeah. that era. The production style, especially, just kind of, like, with the way it sounds. But, like, that song manages to kind of work in spite of itself, and it just kind of goes... And then, like, every other song on here sounds exactly like Dragula, but the hook is not nearly as good. The production is just kind of a mess. It sounds swampy and just kind of, 
there, there's no identifiable instrumental presence on this record at certain points. And it's just, it's so one note. And so like, like I want to get into, like I was trying to like get with the vibe, you, you know, because it's like, oh, you know, Dragula, that's, you know, it's a song you got to be in a certain kind of mood to listen to. But it's like, I can enjoy something that's a little, you know, kind of trashy and shit, but it's just, it's just not interesting enough. It's, it's just kind of bad. And then I'm just kind of like, yeah, I, sorry, not for me. I, I'm, I'm not surprised you feel this way. Um, have any of you ever listened to White Zombie, Rob Zombie's band? No, but I hear they're better. Well, I, 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 I have to say, I haven't listened to any of Rob Zombie's solo material, <laughs> which is just a funny thing to call it. Uh, but uh, my dad did have, probably still does have, the White Zombie album, Astro Creep 2000, Songs of Love, Destruction, and Other Synthetic Delusions of the Electric Head. Uh, yeah. which, which, yes, is, is the real title of the, of the album. And Robert... Robert Zombie, please pull your head out of your ass. Like that, uh, that record is kind of like it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. I definitely, there's definitely some nostalgia associated with it. I probably wouldn't go as far as to say it's good. I mean, I have, would have to listen to it again. It's been so long, but I do remember it having a couple of really solid, strong songs on it, and just the weird dissonance of my dad owning that album, despite the fact that he does not listen to metal like at all but well i mean maybe some like nine inch nails stuff that could be argued to be industrial metal but you know even then this is a weird thing that my dad happens to own that i remember listening to as a kid and that was my first exposure to rob zombie and it has the um very successful song uh, more human than human on it which i will remember until the day i die but anyway um yeah I, I, a lot of interesting uh, titles in his career, including on this very album, like um, uh, The Ballad of Resurrection Joe and Rosa Whore, um, What <laughs> Lurks we, on we, Channel X, we, we need, uh, Meet we need. the Creeper, and uh, the, the other most remembered song on the album, uh, the song immediately following Dragula, Living Dead Girl, which uh, sucks. Bad song. Um, don't know why anyone has fond memories of that one. Um, um, it's it's bad. White um, Zombie have another album that's titled Last Six or Sisto Devil Music Volume One. Ah, <laughs> there, yeah, there is I no volume two. And I also want to point out the the descriptors on Rate Your Music for uh, Hellbilly Deluxe are the first one Halloween, then paranormal, energetic, heavy. <laughs> Male vocals, death, sexual, science fiction, dark, mechanical, sampling, scary. Look, I like that he's still putting out music. His most recent record yeah. from last year is called The Lunar Injection Kool-Aid Eclipse Conspiracy, which is just a great title for an album. I also want to bring up the fact that Hellbilly Deluxe also has a sequel called Hellbilly Deluxe 2, Noble Jackals, Penny Dreadfuls, and the Systematic Dehumanization of Cool. <laughs> and I just want to say, I just want like, with song titles including Jesus Frankenstein, Sick Bubblegum, <laughs> Mars Needs Women, uh, Werewolf Baby, <laughs> and that's not Werewolf Baby, but Werewolf Baby, uh, Virgin Witch, <laughs> Death and Destiny Inside the Dream Factory, uh, <laughs> the amazingly titled Werewolf Women of the SS, <laughs> and the I'm, nine pre I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a movie. 
So all I'm saying I'm, is, I'm that, like 98 percent sure that's a movie. Hang on. <laughs> another great directed by more, Rob. Zombie. Some more great Rob Zombie album titles include "Venomous Rat Regeneration Bender," uh, which oh. which is absolutely amazing, and. I'm just looking to see where he, I, and opens with so, the song Teenage Nosferatu Pussy, which is again, oh. just absolutely absurd. Uh, the 2016 record titled, sounds illegal. The 2016 record titled The Electric Warlock Acid Witch Satanic Orgy Celebration Dispenser, um, <laughs> which has song words. titles that include uh, Satanic Cyanide, the killer rock song. The Life and Times of a Teenage Rock God, Well Everybody's Fucking in a UFO, uh, <laughs> A Hearse Overturns with a Coffin Bursting Open, The Hideous ex Exhibitions of a Dedicated Gore Whore, In the Age of the Consecrated Vampire We All Get High, uh, Get Your Boots On, That's the End of Rock and Roll. Um, I, I could go on. <laughs> Rob Zombie like, saw the film... Morgan, help me out here. We watched this together. It's a zombie film. Uh, is it Return of the Living Dead? Uh -huh. It's the one where she, the, the lady gets naked and dances uh -huh. and talks about being torn apart. That's that's just that is Rob Zombie's entire ethos as a human being. It is to it is I, he he saw that as a young as a young boy as a young lad and said that is what I am going to dedicate my life to. And then he did. The, and also, sharing zombie. The fact that he has not found a way to be dead and also <laughs> fuck at the same time i imagine tears him up inside Look. um and on on this note though uh werewolf woman of the ss is not a film but rather a mock trailer attached to grindhouse that rob zombie made that's why it's oh. familiar to me yeah it's star <laughs> starring uh nicholas cage as mm -hmm. <laughs> fu manchu that oh. i've seen <laughs> And uh, Udo Kier Look, as a Nazi. Well, of course, Udo Kier is, has played a Nazi at least a dozen times. Um, anyway, one That's... last thing to say is that, as you will know from my opinions on some of the film work of Rob Zombie, I have a soft spot for this man that I know is not shared by many of my friends. And that's okay. I've made my peace with that. All I want to say is that Rob Zombie is... Um, <laughs> despite some of those song titles, one of the most wholesome people in the world of like extreme music or whatever, if you want to even put him into that lane. He's just a dude who likes to have fun. He's a dude who doesn't take himself he's terribly a, he's seriously. Honestly, he's a hippie. Like, yeah. dude, just, he's genuinely like, he just makes shit because he thinks it's fun. And I respect that. That's about as far as my respect goes. Sure. But it's something. But he's a goofy as hell dude. He's really wholesome. And I think that, you know, he is a unique figure and he deserves certainly his, he deserves his laurels for, you know, the fact that he has not ever really conceded to taste in any way. And I respect his existence the hell out of is it. worth it purely for the Matrix being able to include Dracula on the soundtrack. Yeah. I mean, simply, it's true. Two things that have really caught my attention this week is that uh, I am the avowed Harold Budd scholar, once again, coming to this segment saying that he's made another good album. Uh, this time, it is Harold Budd's like, neoclassical composition work in the form of the, I'm not 
sure it's a double album, but it is two distinct experiences. It is Avalon Sutra and As Long As I Can Hold My Breath, which are combined into one thing. And Avalon Sutra is sort of his compositional work. It's an it's album length. And then As Long As I Can Hold My Breath is also like a composition, but it's also like the equivalent of like ambient drone if it was like composed it's, it's very like it's a very repetitive hypnotic like hour-long piece of music um but i've listened to this entire thing which is almost two hours like four or five times this week it's like it's really great like calming mood mood music like a lot of harold bud stuff is but he's able to create an incredible sense of atmosphere and instrumental diversity that he's never really like worked with up until this point you can tell that like you know the strings on this are enormous and they sound absolutely fantastic um like just everything on here is just him at his like most maximal even though i mean it's like it's still a pretty like minimal experience but it's it's some of the best work from a dude who's been doing this for a long fucking time and it seems to be an album that people like really that is really well regarded that just not a lot of people have actually listened to so i definitely recommend that i mean yeah it's on the longer side but none of that is inaccessible in the slightest okay. something interesting i listened to on a complete whim i think it was because in the back of my head I had been listening, it was in preparation for when we talked about the Velvet Underground, I listened to Stephen Hyden's podcast episode about that. And during it, he mentioned some of Nico of the Velvet Underground and Nico's solo work, including that of the Marble Index, uh, an album that I've just sort of like had at the sort of periphery of my brain. And I gave that a listen, which is interesting because it's makes an, uh, it made a weird unintentional precedent for when I listened to um, some Bjork this week, because honestly, the Marble Index is like ground zero for what we know as like and chamber and art pop. Um, it's really fascinating because it is like all of these incredibly beautiful, lush sounds applied in the most like I guess aesthetically ugly way possible. It's, I mean, it's very similar to kind of the ethos of the Velvet Underground as a whole, but just taken with a different lens. And it was Nico, like, by John Kyle, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that makes total sense because, like, there are some of these that are just that are so noisy sounding and so ugly, and they managed to find a weird beauty in it. And it's really interesting. It wasn't something that I was fully in love with, but it was definitely like, wow, I can see the roots of. Bjork, of Julia Holter, of just tons and tons and tons of shit that I never would have thought of. Um, I can't exactly say that that album is for everybody just because it is a very abrasive album at times. But again, if you're into shit like White Light, White Heat, right up your alley. I mean, like this is basically what, what White, White Light, White Heat uh, would have been like if Nico were like on it at like she was the first Velvet Underground album. So that was interesting. But uh, as I've mentioned a couple times uh, before, I am slowly going through the entire discography of, uh, again, another podcast favorite band, Panopticon. And I've been going back and I've listened to like their 
really canonized 2010s work. I know that Riley listened to Autumn Eternal at the beginning of this year, and that's one of the best new listens you've had. Yeah. And I completely concur. That is easily one of the best albums the band's made. Um, it's like agonizingly close to being perfect. I think it's incredible if you were... Uh, if you couldn't quite get into the really, really aggressive production on it and again into the light, I would heartily recommend Autumn Eternal just because it's got a lot more clarity. And it also has a little bit more of a, it's less black metal and a little bit more death metal, honestly. A lot of like the drumming on albums like this one, it's a little bit more coherent. It's, it's, it's a lot different than most of black metal and even atmospheric black metal that you might be used to, and especially Austin's vocals. Um, but I'm also going through like the band started in the 2000s and, you know, they have a couple of albums before then and they have a lot of like split LPs with other bands. Thankfully, they have a compilation that is like a updated re-recording of their sections of those split LPs that are, in my opinion, they sound a little bit better and they're just, you know, that on their own. Um, so I listened to the first Panopticon album which is, it's, you know, it's fine. Um, it's, it's very standard US black metal atmospheric kind of stuff. It's very dark, but it's very, you know, it, it's just a quintessential first metal album. Um, it, it, it's not bad in any way. I enjoyed it, but there's, there's just not a lot that makes it particularly distinct. And the same kind of can be said for a first, the, those first few records and split LPs. I think that the sort of generally accepted take on their discography as a whole is that Austin didn't really come into his own until the album uh, Social Disservices. But that's not what I want to talk about. Because what I want to talk about is Panopticon's album that, that came out before and again into the light which is Scars of Man on the Once Nameless Wilderness, which is a really interesting album because not only is this a double album, a very large, a near two hour long record, it's divided into, and it was actually released as two separate LPs like first and then kind of combined into one singular experience. And the reason it's divided is because one half is the atmospheric black metal from Panopticon that you are mostly accustomed to. And the other half is the folk Americana aspect of this sound and only that. The second half is just folk rock, song, folk rock, but sort of still with the metal textures and inclinations and instrumental presences, but it's, it's dialed back a great deal. And this is an album that I listened to when it came out because this is, I believe, the album that got Morgan and I into this band. And like Morgan really loved it when it came out and I listened to it and there was, there was something about it and it was just, it was really captivating to me. And since it's a long album, I haven't really gotten back to it in some years. So I was a little nervous. I was just like, I don't know if all this is gonna work. You know, maybe it's not just gonna measure up. Maybe I remember the production being kind of aggressive and maybe and again into the light is just kind of gonna render that pointless just because it's a perfect execution of that idea. And this thing blew me the fuck away. This was every bit as good as I remember it being. In fact, I think it's even better than younger me thought it was primarily because this is such a stylistic departure. And I don't even mean the second half. The first half of this album is atmospheric black metal, but it's mixed really, really aggressively 
it's 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 murky like way even beyond some of the shit on and again into the light to the point where it's like borderline on like lo-fi with some of the production choices it is smothered in darkness and in that somehow austin manages to find something incredibly fucking compelling about his sound in that and it becomes this purely textural experience and i was sitting there racking my brain trying to be like why does this work for me as well as it does like instrumentally it's every bit as good as everything austin's ever made like some of the guitar work on this is just utterly outstanding i'd say that the guitar work on this album is even better than and again to into the light not to like down talk that album but like this is just so vicious and impressive and I was wondering, like, I want, like, why does this approach work? This really, really extreme sort of far boundary that Austin's pushed this to. And I ultimately came down to the conclusion that this is Panopticon's infinite granite in that, not necessarily in reception, but in the respect that it's focusing distinctly on that kind of texture with metal, but also this is basically black gaze in what it sounds like. Uh, and in such, it's some of the most powerful and genuinely moving shit that he's ever made. It's just as emotionally sort of soulful as And Again Into the Light is. And it's really poignant feeling. And you can sort of tell the process of making this album was really grueling for Austin. I think he sort of like went and sort of hold himself up in the woods and sort of became very attuned with nature and sort of culture that he was born into. And the entire album is kind of about trying to reconcile one's identity and culture and roots and origin with the fact that you've changed or moved on or that other people have changed and moved on and stuff. It's like, it, it's, it's something that I really related to as somebody who's from where around Austin is from is that it's a, it's a constant struggle that you feel and it's really well epitomized. There are moments where it kind of scales itself back and gives you these spoken word pieces or Austin will just kind of say some stuff and it's really affecting, it's really personal. And I, I get where he's coming from. And the second half, I can't promise that that part of the album will work for you. Um, but there is something about how his gruff kind of gnarled voice, which is simultaneously very, pretty and soulful is also kind of harsh and weathered and isn't nearly as polished as you would think other Americana or folk singers are. But it's remarkably like, it's just affecting because his songwriting is so great. And again, it does really get kind of political, especially near, there towards the end in a way that I think is way more tasteful and in keeping with the thematic content of the record. But it's nice to know that people uh, other than me think about murdering Mitch McConnell pretty frequently. The, the biggest listen, the most noteworthy listen that I've had in the past couple weeks uh, is I finally sat down and listened to Tricky's Max and K after oh, ooh, uh, yeah. uh, being, being uh, what I would call a trip hop enthusiast. That's something I needed to cross off the list. Perhaps the most atmospherically dense trip hop, classic trip hop record, um, which is saying a lot. It just feels like it is weighing down on you eh, eh, every step of the way. 
and it's a classic for a reason and totally foundational not just to trip hop but most hip-hop that came after it in some way the other thing i will mention is not an album uh, but rather a single release in the last week uh, that i don't see another opportunity to talk about uh, until we review the album proper and uh, jake is wearing it um, oh yeah so the uh, ghost released a new song titled 20s and I'm... like the muse the museification of ghost has begun i really can only hope that this is an oddball thing because i love the other two singles for this and they are a far cry from this one but believe me when i say this is easily head and shoulders the worst first song ghosts have ever put out like you can come to mild defenses of songs on prequel or on um the second album it's so god awful this is probably going to make our worst songs of the year list by my inclusion I, alone if not I, morgan's in addition it's it, so it, bad it's fucking embarrassing like it's a little more instrumentally complex than this song but uh, the reason i bring up muse is because the the same first listening experience was had the first time i heard the song psycho by muse it was pretty much it was pretty much an identical experience of you really just have no idea how embarrassing this is do you like you fully committed to this bit and the bit is horrendous embarrassing stupid attempts at being relevant or some something <laughs> like maybe it's not even trying to be relevant because it's just so damn why do we have a that ghost it doesn't song matter about trump supporters i why it's not even Tobias. the subject matter it's the the style of the lyricism also is so like it's, cringeworthy it's i just... thought that tobias forge hand to god when he started his first like verse in that i thought he was going to start rapping he's got this fucking like listen up and i was like no please god no 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 and then it ended up being basically just that ad anyway we'll be smooching the defeat to the ruler <laughs> I, like i i i never want to hear anybody talk shit about the rap verse on roller bones ever again <laughs> like it's not even a rap verse on this song. I, in fact, I wish it was just to double down yes. even further so I could laugh. This is just pathetic. Is and this it the sounds worst song hook like ever. <laughs> it might be. It, it sounds like fried anus. The game like especially, are so bad. especially the horns in the beginning, which are like fucking penny synth horns fuck you I, I listening to that song I, I i suddenly understood how morgan must have felt listening to the arc work like i feel like that was a comparable <laughs> experience look liturgy doesn't deserve that yeah i <laughs> the fucking and just the the title of the song being 20s when i saw that song title on the album's song list i was just like this song's gonna suck like there's no there's no universe where you're going to name your song 20s and it's not going to suck shit it's impossible and it's got the hook it's like 20s 
Junji. And I'm just like, why the fuck are you doing this? Like, yeah. If you are referring to money as moolah in earnest in a song, like rethink your entire life decision. Like, look, Tobias, I understand that your first language isn't English, but you've been speaking it long enough now to know not to make this mistake, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't listened to Ghost in like years, which I, I should probably listen to those good albums because I really haven't sure. properly, but... Uh, I decided to listen to this single and like from the riff, I was like, it's not a, it's not the worst riff. It's, you know, it's Other a riff. Than the horns, and, it's pretty solid. Like, yeah. The, and then it's hard with the guitar work. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then I just hear in the twenties, in the twenties. And I'm like, Look, we went through this with lamb of God. How many times do we have I... to teach you old men this lesson? Look, I, I have residual PTSD from that segment of our show, but Lamb of God did this so, so much better. And the thing is, too, is that it's like a lot of Ghost's recent music have really played up the fact that they are a goofy fucking band. Like the, that double sort of EP release of the, the Seven Inches of Satanic Panic, which is just two songs that are about fucking... And they're very silly. They're also great songs. So there's no excuse for this shit. It's not because it's a silly song. It's because it's a silly song that sounds like shit. This is the thing, like, the impression I've always gotten from Ghost and from the one Ghost record I've heard, which is Meliora, this is an irreverent band. Like, this is a band that are kind of, like, they're kind of kitschy. They're kind of, like, metal Scooby-Doo music. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that's the appeal. And people who love Ghost, like, go to Ghost's music for that, you know, feel and that sort of sense of, like, fun metal. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's just like it's self-parody the song it, it, it completely undermines every aspect of that goofiness that's so endearing and it kind of all curdles it into this just like embarrassment which is why the lamb of god thing is better is because at least it's congruent with the music and what that band has always stood for it may not be a good it, it may not be like traditionally well executed but there's a synergy there where it's just like when i'm listening to ghost i don't want to think about fucking the gop man I, I, I place Therese. Fuck you, man. It's so bad. It made me a little reflective because where to where I was like, yeah, where like I can't remember the last time I saw a band that I loved and like been on board in real time for their good stuff and then just slowly watched them suck in like in a way that implies that. Oh, this band's over now. Like this, the uh, we're past the point where you, you hear, this is going to be cool. You hear, you hear that, Tobias? You got Morgan on this contemplative shit. Hey, <laughs> fucking uh, that that weird gay. It's never plan. a good thing if you're making Morgan fucking contemplate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people are like, I, I want to do stuff to free my mind. I'm always trying to lock that shit down. No contemplating. Relatable. Just move forward. I have never had a thought. <laughs> I try to have as few as possible. I don't ever want to be in a situation. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm continuing my 
goal to listen to as many new records as possible to get a really holistic and comprehensive portrait of the year. I continue to listen to the records that came out towards the end of February, and there are some interesting albums indeed, uh, one of which we were going to review alongside Gang of Youths uh, originally when it was announced because, you know, this particular band has such pull and such cachet that them announcing a new record was a moment was like i think it's their first new record and let me check this out for confidence it's their first new record in like 18 years and of course the band is tears for fears and the album is the tipping point and i mean look the prospect of a new oh no the prospect of a new tears for fears record in 2022 was always kind of going to be a bit shaky i mean it's easy to remember just the halcyon days of their 80s records i mean the hurting songs in the big chair and seeds of love great albums a great streak of records elemental it's all right it has some good songs on it raul and the kings of spain everybody loves a happy ending i have dipped into those and i have no desire to listen to them in full so it was fair to say that when tears for fears kind of just sort of went on hiatus i guess that you know it was for the best that they do that rather than continue to put out sort of plodding records but they're back in 2022 with the tipping point and boy oh boy do they have thoughts on our society uh, not again now look i will say with regard to like legacy x releasing sort of albums about social themes and shit this is not like the worst example but it is it's a pretty bad record so i'll just be honest it's not very good at all um it sounds very kind of bland and just kind of toothless and unmemorable uh most of the songs kind of blur together in a haze of just boring lack of charisma uh, there are a couple of like, decent tracks on here the title track is okay long 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 time is okay um yeah there's but <laughs> it just kind of runs together into this kind of river of, of mediocre to some at some points aggressively and annoyingly scolding music and it's just mm-hmm. like it, it's not at some point with certain bands you kind of just have to accept that they're over the hill and that if you're hoping for this massive return to form after a certain point then you're you know you're you're being a bit naive and so all i would say is you know if you're interested in hearing it for the sake of having heard it for the sake of having seeing where this band are at at this particular point in time yeah sure check it out but um don't expect to be impressed because it is pretty dreadful on a lighter note, I wanted to shout out a record this week that is probably the, the best album to come out in the last week that we're not, of course, discussing in this episode, which is the new Conway the Machine record, God Don't Make Mistakes. Oh, now, yeah. I've always heard Conway's name be in the periphery of the conversation with modern hip hop. I know he's related to West Side Gun and he's West Side Gun's brother. And I think he's oh. uh, Benny the Butcher's cousin. So like they're all sort of within a particular collective uh they're all in griselda records and anyway 
Um, Conway has had actually, from what I can gather, a pretty solid solo career. He's always kind of been an underground artist. He's never sort of been an artist that's had a lot of pull, but he's always been an artist that has had a lot of artistic integrity from what I can gather. Uh, but God Don't Make Mistakes is, I think, a really impressive and profoundly moving record in certain ways as well. It is not a masterpiece. Um, it's certainly an album that I think at points feels the limitations of its aesthetic. And I, I think that Conway could be a little bit more ambitious than he is at certain points. But there is a forthrightness to the record. Uh, a lot of the album is Conway. I mean, there's a song on here called Stressed where he kind of raps very repeatedly about like how stressed he is and how no one really seems to give a shit and it works because Conway gives you good reasons for why he's stressed like Conway touches on some pretty dark subject matter in this record um there's some pretty uh ugly stories that are told on this album there's some I mean his rapping is really really strong his presence is really there uh, there are some great songs. There's some great features as well. Westside and Benny are both on this uh, album on the track, John Woo Flick, which is definitely a highlight. Uh, you even have great features from Lil Wayne and Rick Ross, of all people, on the song Tear Gas. Uh, those are artists who know how to switch it on when they want to, and they do do that here very, very well. Uh, it's a reasonably lean record. I think a couple of songs could have been cut. I think tracks like So Much More and Babas are a little re too repetitive for my liking. But there is definitely much more here to be proud of than to kind of, you know, uh, talk down on. There's lots of good music here. It's a really strong project from Conway. I would say that uh, if you check out one hip hop record from February, then I would say make it this one. Uh, another thing I want to touch on, so there's a record that has been getting a lot of Twitter slash internet slash sort of millennial hype at the moment from a band called Caroline. Uh, they are a kind of, they're from the windmill scene. So we've got another windmill scene band and we're, 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 we've got them filling out of our ears. But I would say to distinguish them from the other windmill scene bands, this is a band that's much more based around improvisation and avant-garde musicality. There is a much bigger focus on kind of like uh, studio band sort of playing and kind of just exploring sounds and textures than like you know constructing songs or doing any of the or doing many of the sort of stereotypical signifiers of the windmill scene that said there is a really fine line between uh, interesting and you know uh, fascinating minimal post-rock which is what this record aims for a lot of the time and aimless noodling <laughs> which is what this record uh, inadvertently results in doing for me for a lot of the time as well I want to give it a second shot because like I said there is a thin line there so it's possible that with a little bit more adjustment and sort of getting used to this band's style I could go back to the sort of other side of that line and be a little bit more impressed with it but for the most part I found this fairly tedious I'm sorry to say and I failed to really understand the hype for this band particularly relative to some of their other uh, counterparts I definitely see what makes them distinct but I also see what feels at times to be frustratingly unfocused um, there are a couple of tracks that I did really like uh, skydiving onto the library roof was a big highlight uh, IWR was really really good too there's some textures in the opening track that I really really like too but few of these tracks really amount to much that feels sort of satisfying or significant. And there are just 
like four completely pointless interludes that are at times gratingly annoying and I'm just sick of of that thing happening like usually I'm able to like just sort of give interludes a pass but some of the interludes on this record are just downright irritating so yeah it's 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 not from me unfortunately I'll, I will report back on the podcast if that changes but the other record I want to shout out uh this was recommended to me by a friend of the podcast Brett who actually has been in my DMs a lot recently recommending the album saying, hey, you need to check this out, you need to check this out, which I'm actually really grateful for because like, I don't like to be too reliant on one source in terms of like music recommendations for what's interesting and new. So I like actually when people send me records they think I would like. And Brett thought, sent me this record called Canopsia by this band called Quanic. Um, obviously complete uh, unknown artist, a band camp artist I was not familiar with. Um, but Brett said I would really like this, and I mean, Brett, Brett knows my taste. It took me a couple of listens to really acclimatize to it, but this is a really strong slice of lo-fi shoegaze indie rock. Uh, it has slowcore elements, it has noise rock elements, it has um, kind of emo elements as well that are kind of threaded through it. It is very much in the tradition of, say it with me kids, the paranormal and this new kind of fifth wave internet-esque like very uh lo-fi emo that we're seeing and I love following this I'm always shouting out uh new records in this style and Quantic's Canopsia I think is as good a record as we've had from this particular style in the last few months it's really really strong I I still need I think to to really for a few songs to really quite click with me but I've enjoyed it more and more each time I've listened to it and I've listened to it three times now it's a really short album too it's only just over 30 minutes and it just has a really immaculate atmosphere if you're into this kind of fusion of shoegaze and emo and slowcore and that kind of thing it, it has a lot of heart in it has a lot of emotion in it and the, and when I say it's lo-fi, I mean, it's really lo-fi. Like it's, at times it's, it's almost kind of like oppressively sort of like 64 kilobytes per second type shit, but <clears throat> Quantic finds a way to adopt that aesthetic and make it listenable. It's not quite that ex extreme the entire time, but it may throw you off the first time you hear it, but it definitely gets a wreck from me. Um, another uh, album that it gets compared, it's gotten compared to is Delete Zeke's album from last year, Frailty, which I shouted out in our most overlooked albums of 2021 video. If you enjoyed that record, then you'll enjoy the Quantic album as well. They're definitely very similar artists. Um, and if you haven't listened to the Delete Zeke record, absolutely listen to that, by the way. But yeah, um, that is basically all I have to shout out in terms of new releases however I have one more album to shout out which is not a new release which is an album that I discovered through our friend of the podcast Connor and I'm really grateful that it worked out that he's here today to talk about Gang of Years with us because I it's just nice that I get to shout this album out next to the person who kind of put it on my radar and this album is uh, from a Japanese shoegaze band called Walrus it came out in the year 2000. It's called Hikari no Kakira. And it is one of the three to five best shoegaze albums I've ever heard in my life. It is absolutely amazing. It is like drop yes, everything and get this in your library right now. Good. It's not on streaming, I don't think, but you can get it on Soulseeker. You can get it on, it's on SoundCloud as well, I think. Um, but if you like shoegaze, 
absolutely check this out. Uh, the feeling I got listening to it for the first time was not dissimilar to like hearing Loveless for the first time. And it's, look, I'm not saying it's at the pinnacle level of Loveless, but it's fucking close to perfect, to be honest. And it's only gotten better the more and more I've listened to it. It's an absolutely fantastic album that is not only just shoegaze, but has these alt-rock and noise-rock vibes. It's the meeting point of the new Paranormal record and like Siamese Dream, but also with like shades of Boris in there as well. It is an absolute collision of gorgeousness and heaviness as well. Like it's it's a heavy shoegaze record. And the production style again is quite lo-fi and quite intense and blistering. But um, man, it, like, especially the first two and last two songs on this album, yes. holy shit, this band know how to fucking start and end a record to have it kind of ring in your ears. Like some of the songs, I don't even know how to say because they're written in Jap Japanese characters, but in particular, the penultimate song on this record. Like yeah. I've had this sort of ringing in my head ever since I first heard the album. It is transcendentally good. Um, so yeah, if there's one album you listen to this week from uh, my section of the, what we've been listening to, absolutely make it Walrus's Hikari no Kakira. It is absolutely amazing. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a rock band that's playing. Meanwhile, they're caught in a gigantic avalanche. Like that's how huge it sounds. And I would I would say at this point, it's probably my all-time favorite shoegaze album. Damn. Um, unless you count like Sunbather or something, but that's more black gaze. But the title track, which is the second song on the album. Oh, oh man. Like it starts off blisteringly loud and then somehow gets louder and louder as the song goes on. And the vocals too are amazing because they're just like it's not uh, usually shoegaze has kind of the muttery like soft vocals the singer like just soars over the top of these instrumentals just like he's singing from the highest mountain peak it's yeah it's just a thing of beauty the last track too is also one of my absolute favorites um, no, absolutely. There's like, and I, we talk about these moments of heft, but I'm glad you brought up the vocals as well, because you're right, they do soar and they add this sense of majesty to the music. I mean, the music itself does mm -hmm. that plenty well, but the vocals enhance that so much. And for all the heft as well, there are just moments of, as there should really be on any shoegaze record, there are moments of just like sublime beauty as well. The seventh track on this record, uh, I, yeah. I particularly love for that. It's very close to getting a 10 from me. There's a couple of songs I don't love on the same level as the rest of the record, but they're certainly very good all the same. So check this shit out. I mean, yeah, it's definitely one of the best first listens I am of the year. Fuck yeah. Good shit. And that is my yeah. week. Connor, your turn. You gotta listen to it. So the worst album that I've heard from the past week is a newer album from this year. It's a band that I'm not very familiar with, a Scottish indie pop band, I guess, called Twin Atlantic. And I noticed August listened to this and oh no, uh, gave oh, it that a cannot be good. It's <laughs> if August <laughs> listens to a band we've never heard of, it is either one of the best things we've ever listened to or unmitigated trash. It very much looks like he, I would assume well, he's been scouring the, the worst of the year lists on Ratio Music. <laughs> and this is the result. But yeah, it's like a pop rock, synth pop 
it's just picture the most bland indie pop synth pop that you've ever heard in your life and it's blander than that <laughs> like that's it it's just like there's not really much that i can say about it because it's just it's just so fucking boring like the first song on the album which is called keep your head up is like the most soft quiet like ballad song with just the most like meaningless lyrics about keeping your head up and yeah the Living lyrics your are also down? probably oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah uh, i'm, yeah, I'm imagining like, like the imagined dragon fucking eating churches and that's what this band sounds like Actually, it doesn't even sound like that would be that distinct. It's like if the Imagine Dragon got a hold of like pale waves. That's what I'll imagine it as. That's probably accurate. I'm not very familiar with pale waves, but my um, first album's actually pretty good. I'll stand up for that one. Yeah, this album sucks. Uh, again, that <laughs> opening track is just like it, it. It's weird to me though because it's so low energy that like usually as an opener, opening songs even on bad albums they just like hit you in the face immediately. Or sometimes, like, on several good albums, like, I don't know, Clarity, where it builds up and you get intrigued to listen to the rest, whereas this one is like, okay, fall asleep now because you're not going to want to hear the rest of this. It didn't um, even bother best. being like, oh, we need to put the best song first to trick people. Like, they couldn't even exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and what's funny, what's funny is the next two songs are, like, straight-up synth-pop, like, jams, although they're not jams, they're, they suck, but... <laughs> You can, like they're like they have energy whereas the first one's like keep your head up like just and then he also like on two songs in a row i think he just name drop or not name drops just says the word milkshakes like with no context on two different songs like there's no like theme or anything like he's not talking about like oh we were drinking milkshakes he's just like milkshakes something something <laughs> like just, just does it on two songs. <laughs> does it twice. Man, only Not like when one Adrian Langer was like, it's music. <laughs> um, Connor, I need you to listen to the new Alt-J album and just to tell me whether or not this is more boring than that. Um, okay, I, sh- because- I shall do that. You all have fun with that. I don't want to, but I will, for your sake. Speaking of not good, is uh, <laughs> uh, Mom Jeans put out a new album, which is... Oh, yeah. uh, if you know if you know they, about them, they're a pretty pop, pretty popular like emo pop, yeah, uh, band at least currently. Um, yeah, but they're they're like, they're like fourth waivers. I remember they. I remember like them being talked about a lot in 2016 when you had a lot of like fourth wave emo bands just kind of like exploding. I never listened to them mm-hmm. though. The thing is, I get kind of annoyed when people dismiss like newer emo bands as like oh, this is just American football. This ain't good as, like, like I saw people say that about the Hotelier, which doesn't make sense. I mean, that's, like, one of the best emo bands of all time, so go fuck yourself. Um, just, like, take an AI and give it all the characteristics of every emo stereotype, and that's what Mom Jeans is. Like, it's just, I also don't care for the singer's voice. They kind of have these weird inflections that make them sound like Goofy from Mickey Mouse Cinematic Universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it Once again. again. Wake <laughs> me up. 
That's what. That's how he sings. <laughs> they sing. But yeah, you get amazing uh, lyrics like the first song, uh, which starts off saying, "Give me something sweet so I can make it through the week. Don't care if I end up with cavities when everything I taste is bland. I just want to hold your hand. Please just give me something sweet." It's not, this sounds like the kind of emo band that's going to get some allegations at some point. Like I, I, I just, I just smell it on them. Um, in the um, in the write your music comment box for their first album, someone has written "abusive boyfriend core." They're probably one of the most like disliked bands of the current like emo wave. I think just because all they are is just the stereotypes like they would even sell t-shirts that said i went to a mom jeans concert and all i got was sad or something like that like Ugh. it's just it just comes off like as just solely like marketing to a specific like scene yeah. rather than anything like that feels really like genuine you know that just uh, sounds... i mean why why listen to a band like this when fucking Tiger's Jaw and Origami Angel and Oso oh Oso oh exist. Like you have so many better like bands in this particular tradition of emo yeah. that like yeah. Yeah, Origami Angel is awesome, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Go listen to Somewhere City. I started a little discography run and I've only listened to their first album so far. And it's a band that you may be familiar with, maybe. I don't think a lot of people know who they are, but they're called Big Thief. Oh, yeah, so it's called Masterpiece. That's the debut. And here's the thing. I actually, like, I decided to do this discography run because B Big Thief is, like, a complete blind spot for me. Like, I've never listened to a full-length album. I maybe have heard a song or two, but I didn't remember them. But I will say I did. I had previously listened to Adrian Lanker's songs, which I loved. It's a beautiful album. Um, so I was kind of thinking, like, this would that album would be kind of like Big Thief. But I just didn't realize how much rock there is on this album. Like, I, I just wasn't familiar with that aspect of what they do. And I only listened to this once, and I didn't, like, read into the lyrics very much. But it's fantastic. I love, you know, the songs like the title track, Real Love, Paul. It's just a really good album that I plan on listening to more and more in the future and i'm really looking forward to their uh discography from this point mm. so i think it's gonna be good i'm still see. reeling from two hands yeah so look so you see this here it's gonna be blurry but it says 224 scrubbles for big thief mine is the, the same in the last week nice. um in the last week yeah i thought that was all time i was like what no 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 so yeah, I, I'm pleased that you jumped in with Masterpiece actually, because even though that's probably like at the bottom of my ranking for this band, it's a really good entry point because it is like, it does give you a lot of familiarity in terms of like those indie rock sounds and structures. They get a bit more sort of esoteric and adventurous in terms of like veering away from that with their next few records. And then like Two Hands, I think is kind of a record that brings back that indie rock heft with some of the more sort of ambitious and sort of ornate stuff they've been doing as well but I'm very curious to see how this goes for you because a lot of these records and I'm saying this not just you know preemptively but from personal experience a lot of these records are growers 
and they definitely get even if you really love them they get even better i think once you kind of take in the lyricism because adrian linker is just one of the best yeah. lyricists of the last 20 years in my opinion and i've only grown stronger and stronger in that conviction the more i've actually paid attention to her songs and the band are just really great at like taking the familiar in terms of sound and just like doing stuff that's more complex or original or like just putting a spin on what they do that gives it a particular flavor that makes it rewarding the more you listen to it, it means their music and their songs never start to feel stale i don't think uh masterpiece the song is absolute, one of my absolute favorite big thief songs in general it is one of my favorite indie rock songs of the last 10 years so good it's a beautiful song about growing up as someone who is perceived as like a child prodigy or as someone who is like a gifted child and then the pressure that that is put on you as a young child because of that and then like revisiting that back onto your parents when you grow up and and it's just a really uh cutting and gorgeous and and, and layered song and then adrian's singing and the guitar playing it is so so excellent there's deep cuts on that record as well like interstate and objects and yeah a really really strong solid debut and i'm very very looking forward to hearing what you think of capacity because that i think is the biggest grower in their discog in terms of going in terms of like that one used to be my least favorite and now it's like vying for the second place position there's some there's some fucking songs on that one man but anyway i'm, I'm pleased that you have had like a good experience off the bat with big thief because that can make a big difference so vein fm just put out a new record uh formerly known as just vein uh they were they gained a lot of traction a few years back with their debut album error zone which was probably one of the most hyped albums in the hardcore scene as of recent. It's cool because they're a metalcore band, but they have a lot of different influences from other styles of hardcore, like mathcore. There's a lot of technicality on that debut. There's um, even some post-hardcore elements and even new metal. There's actually quite a bit of yeah new metal influence. I picked that up um, on the new one as well. I, I mean, we're burying the lead here, but I just have to say it. this thing is fucking awesome this thing goes yeah. <laughs> so fucking hard man it's i've only heard it once but like i i can't wait to listen to it again because this shit knocked me on my fucking back like yes. oh man this is great oh man it, it's it reminded me of one of my favorite albums or actually eps of last year which was knocked loose a tear in the fabric of life this is similarly heavy but in a way more like just insane like there's so many different of course like the riffs the breakdowns the fucking drum fills oh my god ah! insane insane <laughs> like everything you could want out of like a, just a crazy metalcore album but then there's a lot of different like unexpected turns that these songs have like the yeah. closer which has oh. this very elongated elongated like clean like haunting section that builds to the very last moment there are a couple of, of bits of like spoken word or like sampling that are used in this album that are just like fucking bone chilling as well and i i've got one way and i'm sure that jake and morgan are both already sold on this but one way in which i know i can definitely sell morgan on this is that jeff rickley is on this album. i was yes yeah he's Bay, he based does the and thursday pilled i'm actually seeing thursday in kansas city next oh Wednesday. fuck you <laughs> they're probably coming to 
Kentucky. Um, and you know. haven't even mentioned as well the name, the title of this album, which is just such a fucking great title. Oh, yeah, yeah. This I world is going that. to ruin you. Like it's, it's hard <laughs> as hell. Time will yeah, die and love will is, bury it. Is that, a, is that a promise? The the best thing I think that you could possibly say about this record is that apart from the last couple of songs, like most of the songs of this record are like two minutes or less, and they're all mm. great. Like mm, there's yes. not a single one where you're just like, oh, this is kind of like this idea could have been fleshed out or whatever. No, they're all fucking great. Yeah, and it's only 32 minutes, but it it like it it does not feel short. But yeah, it rips. Go listen to it if you want some heavy, crazy shit. All right. Well, let's move into the first and only major review of this episode, which is, of course, the new album from Gang of Youths, Angel in Real Time. Now, it's fitting that Connor is joining us for this episode because, as Connor has told us before, our initial record club review of the last Gang of Views album, 2017's Go Father and Lightness, was, I believe, how you discovered our channel. Is, is, that, tr- is that right? Yes. Well, yeah. I, think I, I think I discovered you on Twitter because you posted a topster that had that. Right. I was like, wow. But then I saw your, the YouTube channel and watched yeah. that review. So basically, yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the very first record clubs that we ever did courtesy of Morgan, of course. Uh, it's an album that means a shitload, I mean, to all four of us that are sitting here. I mean, I think we all have that album. Like, it's a 10 out of 10 record, I think. Um, I mean, it's an 11. all-timer, and it's a very special record. And so I think, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, it's kind of been like, I've only had that record in my life for a couple of years now. But um, it's been five years since it came out, and there's almost a sort of certain sense with which you, I, I never wanted to think about uh the the prospect of a new gang of youths record because i didn't want to think about like you know how they would you know have to follow that up and how they would have to like what they could possibly do i i was i consigned myself to like this is the kind of album where you know it just can't be replicated it can't be matched you know they will never make another album like this again just like everything everything will never make an album on the level of get to heaven again and that's fine it doesn't mean they won't make great albums absolutely not but sometimes a band makes an album that is on such a level that it can only be done once and it can't be, it can't be rematched. And so there's a certain sense where it was like, I don't want to think about the idea of a new Gang of Youth record because I, you know, I have this and I am, you know, I, I just can't think, bear to think about the prospect, which is, you, you know. almost want to tell them to quit while they're ahead, you know. Which, it's you know, like- does artists a disservice even though we mean it mean it well and i want to acknowledge that up front because it's important context i think to explaining or at least for me why i feel the way i do about this new record which is to say that uh they've fucking done it it's not go farther in lightness but it is actually stronger for not being that this is both a courageous and incredible left turn that is amazingly pulled off without a hitch. It is also unmistakably the same band that made it go farther in lightness. It is them finding new ways to expand and further their sound while still pulling you along if you enjoyed that last record. And I'm not going to get into it in too much depth yet, but I wanted it to be foregrounded from the start that we 
we like this record. Uh, we like this record quite a lot. And I feel foolish for having doubted in any sense that Gang of Views could do this. But I'm also delighted to say that not only have they made another capital G great record, they have been able to do both at the same time, make another record that reminds me why I've always loved this band and also make a record that blows me away with how it does things I never thought this band could do. And I think it's too soon to really evaluate this album, you know, in terms of like the long run, like with certain records, you just need to see how they sit with time. Um, so I can't really make any grand declarations about it yet. But I think that time will only serve this album better and better. And I would not be surprised if uh, in five years from now, when we're presumably still waiting for the next Gang of Years album, we reflect back and say, you know what? Those motherfuckers did it twice. But anyway, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Um, I think it's only fair, Morgan. You haven't been on the podcast for a couple of weeks. And this, this band is closest to your heart as much as it is to all of ours it's closest to your heart i think and you are the best big part of the reason why they're so integral to the identity of this podcast so morgan do you want to talk a little bit about uh your expectations about the uh release cycle leading up to this album and your impressions of the record now so the the prospect of an active band making the direct follow-up to your favorite album of all time is you know there's a lot of emotions that one experiences easily at the forefront of those emotions was excitement because i just wanted more but i was all i was also just trepidatious not because of anything about the album but just because of everything surrounding it i guess in terms of just how hype works first single was angel of eighth avenue some it was like eight or nine months ago now they released that, was in, that that was in june i think and then sometime after that released the ep total serene which was the angel of faith avenue and another track on this album unison and it was very much a great sort of appetizer for Angel in real time, particularly because uh, Angel of Faith Avenue is just like exactly the kind of song that you would want this band to come out with immediately after Go Farther in Lightness. Just an immediately iconic Gang of Youths song um, in every sense. It's the one that fits most closely with Go Farther in Lightness on this sure. album. Yeah. And then them releasing that as a first single and then releasing unison which unison is a 10 out of 10 song to me i think it's a spectacular uh, but it was also just so new for me in relation to this band and particularly in relation to angel of eighth avenue that it was i i, I want to even say that it was a growing period because there was never a moment where i was like yeah, this song's great but it's lesser it was just like so much of my relationship with the song leading up to it was just sort of trying to figure it out and figure out how it would relate to the big picture of whatever comes next, if it related at all. And it turns out it did. We didn't I do really... remember like at the time, I don't know if you thought this, but at the time I got the, my impression was, okay, 
I'm not sure if these songs are going to be on the next album or yeah. are they just going to be like, are these just sort of songs that they're releasing that didn't make the cut, but they are, feel bad about the weight. So they're putting them out now instead of afterwards. But then we got the album announcement and they were on the track list. Uh, the Man Himself was the next single. If I counted it, it would have been my favorite song of last year. So I'll just have to settle for it being my favorite song of this year, mm. uh, probably indefinitely. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. And I, I like I sweet God. Uh. I like the beautiful thing about that release pattern, right, is that Angel of 8th Avenue. Okay, they've still got it. This is gang, the gang of views I love. This is familiar to me. Unison. Okay, this has got that familiarity, but it's also got some new shit. It's got some electronic influences. It's got this cool like layering of um, Pacifica and uh, Maori choral tribal music as well. So that's a new thing. Uh, multiple new elements. And then Man Himself, which is kind of like the lead single de facto, really, because it comes with the yeah, confirmation of the album, is like fusing those things. It's like you have stuff that was introduced to you with unison and stuff that's familiar from angel and the previous stuff and it's like this holy grail song that is like the the absolute distillation of everything that is great and everything that's impressive and everything that this current era of gang of views sort of represents sonically and thematically as well the best thing that i can say is that the first time i heard the lyrics so take a single step at a simple pace and the outward momentum will maybe unfuck you in time. The first time I heard that, something inside of me said, oh, I don't have anything to worry about. Everything about the man himself, inside and out, it is all sonic perfection. Anthemic music has not been as good as this, it, well, since Go Farther and Lightness, but before that, mm -hmm. before this band as a concept even, I don't know, maybe like I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Maybe that was the last time this was that good. I love that you invoked you too, just because I love like the cheek of it and the fact that you're the person invoking it, but also because like uh, this band's always channeled you too. And I think a lot of yeah. like stadium rock bands as well, like they get brought up a lot in, in discussions of influences. One of the coolest things about Dave is the way that he'll talk on this, in the same sentence about how he's influenced by Oasis and U2 as a performer and how he's also influenced by like Nujibes and like yeah. fucking uh, David IDM. Gray. Avalanches. And David Gray and the Avalanches and shit. Like yeah, it, those things are all like his influences are a big melting pot and they come together beautifully because he knows how to synthesize them because he just has a mind for that yeah, yeah. Him and everybody else in the band because this is you know dave is the front man he is the voice he is the sort of lead creative of gang mm -hmm. of youths but uh every other member contributes in really really important ways uh particularly mm -hmm. the band's newest member who had a lot of sway over creation of Angel in real time in general, particularly the man himself. If we want to talk about that one, narrow down on that in particular. Um, a lot of the reason that that song sounds like that, you in real time is another great example of this, uh, is because of his really heavy influence over the sort of sonic progression of this band. So the, the, the prospect of a group following up your favorite album of all time is always daunting, uh, but it's good when you can be 
more than anything excited and that other than just your own anxieties, there's nothing about the product uh, released up to the actual full release that gives you any pause or hesitation. And then even better than that, there is nothing better than it coming out at its full release and being something even after all of these singles that you didn't necessarily expect or want but sort of feel like you this is what it needed to be and it's what you needed to hear as sort of the follow-up to something that impactful on your life and yeah i don't like this as much as go farther in lightness but i also don't fucking care that i don't because it's it serves such you don't an like entire... fucking anything as much as you like go farther in lightness well, I like, like, I don't know, may, maybe my parents. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it, it's a, it's a, it's I meant a, art, but yeah. Yeah. It's a moot uh, point, really. Like, you put the album on and you don't want to turn it off at any point. Like, it yeah. is. I'm it, like, I, like, I'm putting it on and I'm not even thinking about Go Farther in Lightness yeah. because the, the album is just so fucking immaculate unto itself pretty much every step of the way that it doesn't matter whether or not you like it more it just matters that you're hearing it now and it's come to you at this place in your life and you may never like it more but it might mean as much to you as time goes on Mm. I think um, at this point it's probably good to start talking about the story of this album and the conceptual background and why this album sounds the way it does, why this album exists in the first place, because Dave is the kind of artist who would never put something out for the sake of releasing music. And there always is a sense of purpose and unity and clarity and vision behind everything that he does. It's one of the things that makes Gang of Views so exciting as a prospect. But in many ways, while an album like Go Father and Lightness is, of course, in the view of this podcast, immaculate and thrilling for all of its near 80-minute runtime, it's an album that's very much like it's built around certain themes and ideas and, and you know, patterns of growth and experience and all that sort of stuff. And it's, But it's not particularly, like, nailed down to a lot of particularly specific experiences that you're privy to. It's more just a song about the process of growth and the process of you know, change and, and relationships and all that sort of stuff. Angel in Real Time, however, is much more tangible. Angel in Real Time has this consistent story and arc flowing through it. There is elements to the way this record is constructed that mean something specific and tangible that you can take away and relate to other songs. Every song relates to each other on this record in ways that make it very satisfying and holistic as a listening experience and also i think uh increase the emotional connectivity of this album uh, maybe even more so than go farther in lightness which is not a slide against that it's just that there's an emotional immediacy here through the directness of what these songs are about that makes it i think a record that really knocks you knocks well knocks me anyway i can only speak about my own experience but it knocked me sideways in ways that i wasn't expecting and so plainly put this is an album about dave coming to terms with the death of his father uh his father was a man that dave looked up to immensely i mean he's pictured on the cover of this album 
Um, and his father had a tumultuous and lengthy life. He must have been in his 80s when he died, because I'm sure I read somewhere that he was born in the 30s. Down at the line in Brothers, where it's like thought he was born in 1948, but he was a, born a full decade before. There we so. are. That's right. And so that there hints at one of the core aspects of this focus, which is that when Dave's father died, it was only at that point that Dave began to unlock uh, secrets about his father's life that he had was not previously aware of, such as, for instance, his dad had always lied about his age and pretended to be 10 years younger than he had been. It goes deeper than that, of course, like his father lied about where he grew up. His father lied about having grown up and spent most of his life in Samoa, when in fact he grew up in New Zealand. Uh, his father lied about his heritage. His, he, his father pretended that he uh, was half white so that he could essentially gain access to certain privileges in New Zealand, which were afforded to people who had that cultural and ethnic background. He, perhaps most devastatingly, uh, left a family behind in New Zealand and two children that he left behind to start a new life in Australia. And so Dave was unaware that he had these siblings until after his father died. And he traced back, went back to the islands and then traced back um, the lineage to New Zealand and discovered these, these lost brothers who thought their father had been dead for decades. So there's this rich and, and hugely emotional story that feels like it would be something out of a movie, right? But it's given this intense grounding in reality. And it's not just an album that is about Dave telling, you know, the story of, of learning all of this information and coming to terms with it and grieving his father, but also holding his father accountable for his mistakes and trying to understand his father's motivations as well. There's multiple songs on this record where he sings from his father's perspective and it's you get a sense of, of a, of a son who is trying in real time to figure out and understand this enigmatic man who hid so much, who he spent so much time just kind of staring at and trying to think, what is he thinking? Like, what is going on? There, there's this real sense of searching, of longing, of trying to understand. And there is a sense of an arc of a journey for, for Dave himself on this record. One of the things that we alluded to earlier, or that I alluded to earlier, which is the incorporation of traditional Pacifica and Maori uh, tribal music onto this record uh, specifically and I want to get this absolutely right the recordings of David Fanshawe who is uh, the reason that a lot of world music and music from the Pacific Islands and music from Maori um, people in New Zealand is widely available because he recorded a lot of it uh, his recordings are sampled frequently on this album as well the band went to New Zealand and recorded Maori uh, singers and recorded original tracks for to incorporate into the songs on this record because that aspect of his father's heritage is an important part of Dave's journey to understanding the truth about him understanding uh, where he came from his motivations what meant a lot to him um, and also the things that he hid as well because his father was someone who didn't necessarily make a lot of or put a lot of priority on his heritage and day-to-day -day life when he was raising his sons. It was something that Dave only really realized the ultimate importance of, again, after his father had died. And so these incorporations not only serve to, you know, broaden the sound of this band, who've always had this far-reaching outward sound, um, but actually to give this additional layer of connection that allows you to 
link the lyricism and the sound to the actual places and cultures that are specifically being evoked and talked about on this record there's a lot to dig into in terms of lyrical subject matter as well and, and how these things all relate together. Uh, I'm Pakia, of course, I'm a New Zealand European, I'm white, so I have a sort of limited perspective on these things, but it is excited for, it's exciting for me to be able to talk about a record on this channel that talks about or that references things that I am pretty intimately familiar with from my own upbringing that come from this world. I mean, very rarely, we very rarely review New Zealand music, let alone music that reckons so heavily with historical aspects of New Zealand history and the relationship between Aotearoa and the indigenous Maori people and the European settlers and, and the history. And there's songs here that touch on fractious civil rights you know, movements that have happened in New Zealand and uh, dawn raids and stuff. And there's heaps of shit to get into, but it's all texture and this gigantic tapestry of this story about Dave not only coming to terms with grieving his father, but coming to know his father even more intimately after he's dead and also coming to know himself and uh, unlock and appreciate a new aspect of his own identity in a more intimate way through this process as well. So that's a lot of context, but it's so important because all of these songs pull from it. All of these songs fade and fold into it. And all of these songs get so much of their euphoria from the way in which they channel these moments of euphoric joy, these moments of realization, these moments of devastating, you know, sadness at certain points as well. And, and Dave is such a, a brilliant writer and, and brilliant sort of conceptual mastermind in this instance that he's able to make all of those things maximally impactful. Yeah, it's it's a hell of a fucking record, man. I've been I've I've had this thing on a near constant loop. I've listened to it every day this week, and I still am nowhere near tired of it at all. It it it's it's this thing is a rich fucking text. I'll just leave it at that for now. A lot of people out there, especially like in the States or people, you know, not in Australia don't really know about this band because they have, they still have yet to really break out in those places. So a lot of people might listen to this like completely blind, like not know anything about Dave or the band or the backstory behind this album. And they might think of this and they might hear and be like, oh, it's, you know, a bit grandiose. It's a bit over the top. It's a bit over dramatic. It's too yes. long or whatever. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh -huh. yes. But like, it's also important to understand that with all three of these records um, that they put out, they're all a, like a specific journey that Dave has been through in his life. Like, for example, The Positions is an album about him dealing with a relationship that he had with a terminally ill person. And I believe living in New York at the time. And the most notable song on that album, which is called Magnolia, and it's kind of a joyous, uplifting sounding song with lyrics that are actually about a drunken suicide attempt. And it's important to note that because there's a song on this album that uh, is about that, but more alludes to like his father. And the reason that I find Gang of Youth al albums 
regardless of their length, regard, regardless of the song length as well, the reason I find them so replayable is because there's just so much to unpack. And like this album has only been out for a week and it's by far my most listened album from this year, at least. And even then I'm still unpacking stuff like in terms of all of the detail in the music, in terms of the specific lines and lyrics, because it's not, it's not an album that's just about him mourning the passing of his father even though it very much is about that, but it's also, like you said, it's about him uncovering all of these things that he didn't know and that his father never told him about, which I can't, I can't even imagine like the emotions one would go through f- finding out that, you know, especially in the song Brothers, where he finds out just all of the stuff that he never knew and the journey that he takes going to all these different places to reconnect with his ancestry and to discover like the family that he never knew he had. Mm. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's fundamentally like an album about grieving, like the process of grieving in a complicated way. But like mm-hmm. what makes it so fulsome is that it's not just like every song is about, Oh my dad, because you have songs on this record that give you a picture of the other people in and the other aspects of Dave's life that are interacting with this process like Angel of Avenue is a song about his partner and how she's there for him and how she supported him in so many different ways while his father was dying and then after that and it's a song that is you know written as a kind of euphoric dedication to her love and how important she is to him. Returner is a song about like how during this process he also has to rely on his career as a musician in order to sustain himself and how I'm like only in it for the money and how that's kind of a poison pill in certain ways as well because you rely on it as this cathartic thing but it's also like it's in a weird place for you in relation to the other things that are going on in your life and there's a sense of like tongue-in-cheek humor and, and kind of like Uh, spite in that song that gives you a picture of where he's been at song like unison and spirit boy these are songs about like reconnecting with his cultural heritage and and getting closer to it and getting a, a a newfound appreciation and connection to it and the kind of place that he exists in and the heritage that he exists within and the history that that's all tied up within the concept of wairua as well, which is the Māori word for spirit, is something that is brought through on the song Spirit Boy. You get so much of not just the grief and the process and the learning, but like the actual world that Dave exists within. It's complicated. It's manifold. It's full of all of these different, you know, stressful elements and things that are kind of interacting. And the, the, because they're so well connected and put together and because the album has this sense of real sweep to it that pulls you along all of these songs, you feel like you're experiencing all of these things at once. And it, so much is packed into these like, what, 68, barely even 70 minute album. And to the point where, you know, every song is giving you something new, even if they're, it's, it's talking about something that, uh, you know, other songs have already talked about. I think this is why the opening track, You and Everything, is such a perfect way to enter the album because it lays out the fundamental emotional core that underpins all of these, you know, stressful things that are happening in his life, all these people that he has in his life, which is that connection, that need, that relationship, that feeling of love. 
and that feeling of not being alone there's uh, even within the song like the way that there's so much going on lyrically here but the way that he has that refrain of like you know of i something something you and everything that changes across the song to track his relationship with his grief as he grieves it starts off with i still need you and everything i will need you and everything and it gradually but by the time you get to the end of the song that initial sentiment of I need you and everything has turned to something affirmative and beautiful which is I will feel you and everything it's no longer a sense of needing something you don't have but a sense of knowing that that thing will actually always be with you and Dave is great at just reinforcing that idea in between these you know dense and detailed verses that give you like specific scenes in his life and his emotional process um, that unpack that in more detail but then just bring it back to that simple sentiment that he just fucking sings his lungs out to convey and I mean, my God, <laughs> I've, I've, I've shed a few tears to multiple songs on this record, but this one really like just, it, it's such as, I, I love that this album like opens and closes with these huge bombastic tracks that are also like surprisingly introspective as well and give you this more complicated gang of use thing than just the whole like bombastic pounding my fist against my chest and screaming sort of heartland rock shit. It's you know sometimes it's quiet and sad and 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 minimal and 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 i'm gonna get carried away here so I'll, I'll tie this off for a second but minimalism is something else that um davis talked about the influence of and that comes through here as well on other tracks but what do you guys think of this of the way this album kind of opens with you and everything and the way the album kind of like seals into and introduces you to this new world i think it's a absolutely beautiful way to start the record and it, I mentioned this before, but it kind of reminds me of the way Sleep Well Beast by The National starts off. Motherfucker, I was going to make that exact same point. <laughs> the opening Go. sort of texture work really reminds me of what's probably my favorite National song, which is So Far So Fast. Oh, off of, uh, I, uh, I, I'm Easy to Find. Well, yeah. I mean, good point to just bring up here that that opening texture is straight from Steve Reich um, and who is one of the mm, biggest uh, influences yeah, on or, this yep. album. Steve Reich and Philip Glass, both huge influences. I've been, I happen to have been listening to both of them in the last month off and on. And you can hear like in that opening sound, you can hear like music for 18 musicians uh, in the way that uh, in the wake of your leave uses that do 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 vocal sampling. You can hear like uh, elements of Philip Glass and Einstein on the beach and Koyanis Katsi even like you can see how uh, those influences are more present than ever and just the principle of minimalism the idea of like taking a very simple musical idea repeating it and then just using building intensity and building emotion out of simple elements is something that comes through a lot on this record and I mean it, it connects to the to the Maori and Pacifica music that's used on this album as well which is often rooted in minimalism too but I digress it's just cool textural shit that again is totally different from Godfather and Lightness. Oh, by the way, to the people watching, um, if you want like a, an amazing track by track dissection of this album, listen to uh, Radio X, the interview that Dave and um, the newer band member, I'm, I apologize, I forgot his name, because they like go in so, like into so much depth and in what influence and what went to these songs and how they record them and stuff. But one thing that they said about you and everything, the opener, 
that really interests me, like I found really intriguing and I didn't even realize listening to it is that this song borrows melodic elements from the rest of the track listing. So it's almost like an overture, like some, some sort of medley of sorts, which is even knowing that and listening to it, it's still hard to pick up on what exactly is being borrowed because it's so subtle and so seamless that it doesn't feel gimmicky in the way that, sorry to bring this band up, but AJR overture is <laughs> where they just mash every song and make it the opener. They they did what I like yeah. to think of as a reverse Wonder Years, where like on Greatest Generation, oh Wonder, yeah, yeah. Okay. Wonder Years bring back like all the all the chorus hooks and melodies on their last song, whereas this, this is like the inverse of that, where they kind of like preview in in subtle ways, definitely um, a lot of mm-hmm. what's to come on the album, and that's just it's such a it's yeah. such a Gang of Youth thing to do, like because it's like meta and it's also like it's part of the sweep of this grand project, like it it, it speaks to so much of like dave's artistic impulses that make him so endearing to people like us i think and yeah that shit's just really satisfying once you pick up on it yeah i apologize again for bringing up this is about to say much more favorable comparison than yeah ajr (laughs) i love how the opener is like it is sweeping and grandiose in many moments especially near the end where the percussion comes in and it's just absolute blissful blissfulness and i just feel so much but i love and this is something that is like not even just on this song and not even just for this album but for all their albums all their all of gang of youth music is that they know exactly when to tone it down and when to get like intimate and personal especially my i think my one of my favorite lyrics in the band's whole discography is the last verse on this song where he says it'll torture me at first then it'll hurt a little less and i will pour through every piece of you till nothing new is left just your eyes and my reflection and the heavy thing now beating in my chest yeah it's good it's good song yeah and then the and then when he sings about uh like singing his dad hymnals from the islands until he drifted off to sleep like I just like really man like I'm gonna cry this or this is the first song I'm not even done mm-hmm. with the first song Strapping, motherfucker we're going we're going to fucking sand town on this motherfucker yeah this motherfucker has the audacity to open up a song with God died tonight and I'm just like man fuck you shut up oh, <laughs> fucking you playing. this is persona three what the fuck's going on here <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in the wake of your leave, like continues that sentiment that that opening song kind of like the setting of emotions that an opening song kind of puts you within, like again that continued emotional processing of the again immediate wake of um, this death and the way again he's such a poetic writer as well the way he's able to describe these things. There's this beautiful part in the song where he describes I guess the grieving process or the emptiness of 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 a loss with like it quakes and moves then breaks and shatters all over me in shapes of all these quiet sacred things i need which is again like that's fucking beautiful um and and fucking devastating and the way that again he's able to turn this sort of like inability to understand or even process grief into this anthemic chorus that is essentially like makes you want to holler along and scream at the top of your 
lungs and it, all it's about is feeling empty and not knowing like what to do like the, and man himself does that again as well like one of my favorite choruses of all time and it's just like i don't know how to feel is <laughs> the chorus like the sentiment is so like you know uh, inconclusive and just like confused and yet dave turns that into something like anthemic and like that you can scream at the top of your lungs like I can't tell you enough like how profoundly affecting I find it in the man himself when like he's just screaming at the top of his lungs I don't know what to feel I don't know how to feel right I don't know if I'll ever feel right like that's the way he's able to turn that into like something that is almost like a euphoric thing to be able to just express is like that that shit to me is 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 profound that's 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 what profoundness is to me in music is is, is being able to take you know a, a raw and honest and you know ugly and not particularly elegant feeling and emotion and just make it into something that is the most like triumphant thing in the world one of my favorite like musical details on in the wake of your leave is the beginning where and I remember first hearing this as a single where it had the do, do, do like vocals. And I was like, at first I was like, where is this going? I, I, it's not that I didn't like it. I was just like, I don't know where this is going, but once those drums and the guitar doubles it, and then the strings come in and double that as well. Oh yeah. Triple it. It's just, I get, I got chills just immediately. I was like, Oh Okay. That drum fill before the tempo right. change in that song is like, oh god, it's 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 sex. That's like oh. another thing about oh, this yeah. album is just like how extra it is sonically. Like above and beyond <laughs> the stuff I've already mentioned, like there's moments on these songs where like the mixes will be so dense with so much shit happening that it's a miracle that it sounds coherent. Like at the, the kingdom end of- is within you is one of the, the the ones that's just like, oh my God, how did they fit this much shit into one song? And like at the end of Unison as well, when like everything is going crazy yeah. and the, the choral vocals are coming in and it's just like, it's almost cacophonous, but it's like just like perfectly done so that it doesn't feel like completely disorienting. Well, it feels disorienting, but in a good way, like, and you're just kind of taken up in this wall of like, incredible sound where things are like just smashing into each other but there's no clash per se Uh, there's no dissonance in a way that like well there is a little bit of dissonance but like it doesn't leave a bad impression it's just like they're able to like throw so much shit into some of these songs that you know it's it's purely overwhelming and i mean even compared to go farther in lightness which was of course an extra as fuck album like these songs are just so full of shit and and then like the best way possible like you know what i mean <laughs> that's gonna be the the pull quote for a review <laughs> these songs are full of shit james and t podcast says full of shit got a lot of stuff Ten. Um, you know and that's what makes a moment on this record like brothers so fucking you know hit like a fucking two by four is that like it's two by four is wood what do i mean four by four um what's i'm i don't want to get hit with either i mean yeah anyway like a in the words of uh strapping on lead it hits like a really heavy thing um anyway (laughs) i I like to picture this comparison more as the beginning of final destination two (laughs) yeah like when Brothers comes in and all of a sudden you've gone from like, especially on the back of like, you know, fucking Unison in the Garden, Kingdom is Within You, Spirit Boy, these very fucking dense songs. 
brothers comes in and it's just that simple piano motif mm. and this really kind of like beautiful like straightforward and quite linear storytelling which again is partially influenced by like the tradition of storytelling among like Maori and Pacifica people as well like it is a moment where you're kind of sitting and just have being regaled with this very detailed and specific personal story um, that has a kind of like fairy tale quality to it through the melody as well and it's it's um i mean fuck i mean i mean fuck this song man this song fucked me up the first time i heard it yeah man. and i feel like it's almost at a disadvantage being the most minimal track here and and by no means is that actually a diss because it's a fucking breathtaking moment on the album and it's just a uh, like a remarkable piece of storytelling and atmosphere in and of itself but everything else here is so dense that if that song wasn't as good as it was it would feel like a weak point and the fact that it doesn't at all is like again the construction's immaculate here because you go you have these opening songs like these first three songs that are kind of about immediate grief and then you have returner which is kind of like moving towards that current state of mind and like you know the way the way in which the the real world and the other shit in my life is starting to intrude on this and unison again the the unlocking of sort of cultural aspects that are starting to become more important as you're kind of going on this new journey teen the garden kingdom was in you songs from you know dave's father's perspective where he's actively trying to understand like his dad's motivations and kingdom kingdom is within you especially which i mean i think this song is amazing but this is one of the songs where like when i first heard it, the first time i heard the album I was like whoa holy shit when those pianos come in and it's just like and the way he just sings the upside of it like i was just fucking bopping yeah, straight so away um, that's actually maybe the most u2-esque song on this album in some ways um yeah but um, you know, this is a song about like the tribulations of 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 Dave's father living in New Zealand, and there's references to the Dawn Raids, which, if you're not aware, were these you know horrible sort of uh, instances of police, you know, brutality in like the '70s and '80s, where like undocumented Pacific immigrants, like police, would just kind of like storm into their houses at like six in the morning and take them away and deport them, and like he makes references to like having to live in fear of that and um but like there's a beautiful spirit in the song in the sense that like dave's dad is not like you know he's not you know horribly depressed or like horribly you know he's he's just like energized and like wanting to live his life and like look on the bright side and like you know be strong through all of this he has this great temperament um that reminds me a lot of people of a lot of people that i've known growing up yeah and it's this beautiful part of the moment and then spirit boy again like tying that back into dave in the wake of his dad's death and it's quite devastating the way those two songs hit back to back and then brothers like what makes brothers work is that you are given all of these different fragments of the experience and of the people involved and then and you can't you don't have the full picture yet and then brothers you get the full picture he sits you down and he, he threads all of this stuff together for you in a very plain and straightforward way and all of a sudden like if you weren't already aware, everything on the album before it is suddenly given this additional context and this additional clarity. Uh, I'm sure like we probably all knew what was coming because we were familiar with the story, but I imagine for people who are just like discovering this album and listening to it, I'm sure the experience of, of hearing brothers and like realizing, you know, okay, I, I, I get it now. I get what this album is all about. Like it's this really profound and powerful moment. 
And um, I think it's really well placed on the track list because if you think about it, like there's very few places where the song could work. But here I think it works really, really beautifully because it's sort of it's sort of like summing up everywhere the album has been so far before the final kind of act of um, forbearance through to goal of the century kind of gives you closure or at least where Dave starts to reach a, a sense of closure um, after, after being at the peak of his like confusion in a song like Spirit Boy. So yeah, it's good shit. It's interesting. Like when Tend the Garden came out as a single, there were specific lines because I, I had heard that it was from the perspective of his father um, who loved uh, loved to garden supposedly and it even makes references to him playing uh, organs in church and there were specific lines on that that I didn't understand at the time because I knew this album was about his father but there was like the line where in the second verse where he says we settle down raise a couple of kids but I couldn't bring myself to tell them what I did. And I was like, what's he referring to there? And then brothers comes later. And then you learn. Oh, that. that. Yes. It's, it's one of those moments. And it just hits. I, I feel like brothers in a way is while musically, of course, it's so minimal and repetitive, but in a way I feel like it's like the centerpiece of the album. It's like, in a way the most important track because it just gives you the full picture as a listener that you that may not have been clear otherwise if it wasn't on here it's it's just such a beautifully written ballad as well especially towards the end there's a specific moment where actually two moments uh, i think on the last two verses where i started to cry a little bit because in one of the verses he talks about meeting one of his uh his brothers that he never knew before and there's that line and he told me everything he knew that our father left him at the hospital and then dave pauses and like lets that ring out a little bit and then comes back with the line but if he forgives him then i should too and it's like it's just such a hard-hitting moment and the end too like the very last verse like so as i dig through the collateral the secrets hit throughout the years i know i'll hardly ever answer them but it's a way to keep him near i just hear that and my stomach drops a moment that really fucking guts me because i can i can relate to the feeling that he's conveying is when he's like he's talking about you know when his dad died and he's like he's and he's talking about his sister and their relationship and how yeah, she yeah. and her husband came over to keep his mother company their mother company uh, and he says, even though it fucked them up a lot, they did a better job than me. And there's just like this, that, there's just this moment there where he like, again, like he does on other lines of the song, he kind of just, he holds a pause and then he just kind of lets that out. And it, it's just, you know, that's one of those moments where you're just like, you know, you're confronting, you know, your own like shortfallings and the things that you regret and you're being honest but also maybe being too hard on yourself and also just like it's just like this utterly relatable moment that makes me just fucking cave in when I hear it like I, I just I, I understand exactly how he's feeling in the exact moment that he says those words and it's it's a lot yeah putting all of that information on just one song and releasing it to the world like I just can't imagine 
you know, like it's got to, I feel like it's got to take a lot of guts and courage to just tell everyone about this, such a personal, uh, personal story and like his own shortcomings. Like, yeah. I want to take a moment now to bring up the closing track of this record, which is split into two songs. Um, but Dave has been very clear that they're one track. Uh, Hand of God slash Goal of the Century, which is the kind of 11-minute sweeping uh, end to this record. So first of all, the Maradona references um, for football heads. I mean, I'm not a football head, but even I know who Maradona is, and I know about the Hand of God and the Goal of the Century, these like iconic moments in football that happened four minutes apart in the same game, and like Hand of God and Goal of the Century are four minutes separated from each other to kind of like as a direct allusion to that but also like um maradona uh was a figure that dave's father uh looked up to or saw a lot of honor in uh even though he was a heavily flawed person as well maradona but this suddenly getting football allusions on a gang of use album like it's it's like it's appealing to the los campesinos fan within me i'm sure it does to you too uh connor as well but um but anyway this is with a visible football poster this is like um it's a different football yeah. it took me a couple of listens to the album to really process the way that this ends because in some ways it's a a more understated conclusion to the record than you might expect from gang of Youths. but i've come around to realizing just how sort of perfect that it is again i talk about how the album sort of has this arc of closure towards the end which doesn't necessarily mean no longer grieving there is still a longing that persists here but there is a sense of looking forward to the future for maybe the first time in these songs and again we've had the concept of spirituality of wairua evoked uh, on this album already and dave has been very vocal about you know the fact that he is a spiritual person he's a religious person uh, a lot of his relationship with spirituality and religion again comes from his culture comes from his father comes from you know the heritage as well um, but spirituality has always been a kind of a fixture that's been maybe more wallpaper and more kind of subtext in Gang of Youth's music than like something that's outright been, you know, praise hymns or whatever, because I'm sure that Dave doesn't really view his spirituality in a super conventional way anyway. But it is something that comes to the fore here. You have like, again, the the repeated refrain of Alleluia and you have the lyrics that evoke like singing hymnals and uh the process of like celebrating and and praising itself uh again the repetitive allusions to angels again like the way that dave views his father now in death and the the omnipresence of his you know lingering effect and impact on dave's life like using the idea of the angel to represent that he's already sort of spoken about his wife as the angel of eighth avenue like he views and or at least paints these key figures in his life with this kind of spiritual you know uh, grandiosity and this is the moment like that's something that has always felt like a, a motif for dave but what's beautiful about the way this album ends it feels like it comes full circle in terms of like a finding a peace within you know, the presence of spirituality and of people in his life, whether they're there or whether it is just their spirit, their wairua, that is living, you know, through Dave as he continues and as he 
celebrates his life, celebrates his wife, celebrates the fact that they want children, celebrates the fact that his brothers are now in his life. And, and there's a moment towards the end of the, the very end of the song, like the, the final part of this, the final sort of set of lyrics on this whole album that are just like the perfect little bow on all of this, you know, and it's, it's this perfect little moment. It's six in the morning, England is storming. My wife is asleep and we're thinking of children. I wish you could meet them in a way it'll feel like you were an angel in real time. Again, love that title drop, by the way, at the very, very last moment of the record. And it's just this, it's just a gorgeous way of ending the album. I mean, what do you guys think? Uh, just one of those moments that like, you can't really ever replicate again after the first time you hear it, where you just sort of go, oh, oh. There's like a beautiful thing he does in the song where he kind of like, he talks about life as if it's a him, as if it's something that that he uses a kind of like metaphor, metaphor or like a visual idea of like a life being lived is like a song being sung. And then like, you know, when someone is dead, that others singing the song that they created is a way of them continuing to live. And it's a very beautiful, uh, I think, way of conceptualizing, like the, the way that someone can continue to exist through the minds and presence of others after they're dead. And of course, tying in you know, spirituality and, and worship and praise into that because singing is such a huge part of that. And of course, for Pacifica and Māori people, singing and praise songs and hymns and the community that comes from those things is a huge part of their spirituality, of, of, of connection and of community and of whānau, which is an incredibly important concept here in New Zealand. Um, so anyway, that aside, like that's all tied together in this, like he sings this, these lines, you sing the verses and I repeat the tune, got to think it over and I hesitate, I want to make it true, I take beating for it, it's what I do, nothing and everything, um, and then later he says, you want to know what a life is, and you take it day by day, you want to see it in motion, the sum of a life contains every bad vibe, every undivided groove, you want to live in the open, hey, hey, say the truth, I mean, some real say yes to life shit in there like if we're to go back to the last album but also you know like if you want if you're no matter if you're in the shittiest mood like if I'm in the shittiest mood if I'm in like feeling fatalistic or thinking about my mortality or whatever existentialist shit I know now that I can put this on and hear those words and you know feel like uh, you know life makes sense instead of being this weird enigma that I'll never understand. Uh, and, and Go Father in Lightness has done that for me over the past couple of years, but Angel in Real Time's greatest success for me, and this will be the last thing I say on this album, is that uh, it also offers me a way to feel better about all those things, to understand life and living and all that sort of shit uh, in a new way that's completely different to how Go Father in Lightness does it for me. The true triumph of Angel in Real Time, I think, is not just that Gang of Youths have made another great album. It's that Gang of Youths have made another great work of art that connects to my heart in, its, in a way that nothing else has, that does so and helps me in ways that are completely independent of how their last album do it. Like, it's another masterpiece that justifies its existence and that 
it's not even really worth comparing to go farther in lightness because it's a completely it's trying to do completely different things and what it offers is completely different anyway and that is its greatest triumph is that it is always going to be in my life until the day I die this album and it will be for particular moments and particular times where I need it and nothing else will give to me what this Gang of Youth album does just like nothing else will give to me what Go Farther in Lightness does and that's the beauty of gaming it's the beauty of gang of views that's why they are so important and they need to be heard and people need to be aware of this music and people need to listen to it because i believe if they had a larger audience if more people were aware of this band they would be huge they could play stadiums they could be one of the biggest bands in the world but it's not that people don't like them it's that people aren't aware of them and I don't know that there's been a band that I've felt this more strongly about ever since I've been following music that they need to be heard. And even if they're not, like I, I know that I will be one of the lucky ones who has this. And, you know, it's that I feel as lucky about that as I feel lucky to be alive. To build on something Connor talked about earlier when he was comparing something very specific to the national is um which is in the few circles I've heard this band talked about, a band that is often compared to Gang of Youths, which is not unfair because of the distinct Heartland rock influences that are in both, as well as the very similar vocal presence that I think that they can. Uh, the two frontmen of the bands and that I'm talking about can have at times, but in many respects, I kind of view uh, these two albums, this and go farther in lightness as their respective uh, sleep well beast and the following. Um, I am easy to find where the one is sort of rooted in a very specific, like, like like a story like a narrative that kind of feels vaguely like operatic and emotional and then the next album is this distinctly more like it kind of builds off of the little bits of experimentation that were in the previous record and takes it in a more ethereal and for lack of a better word kind of spiritual direction which is simultaneously like has the potential to alienate people who really enjoyed the record previous but also is just a, an ingenious move on the band's part because it doesn't mean that they're going to to pigeonhole themselves and it's why gang of youth are and a band that deserve to be heard because they i don't think anyone else would pull a creative decision quite like this uh not and not to mention executed as well as they do as the technical person who's been a fan of gang of youth the longest i guess that's honestly like the biggest hurdle i'm overcoming with this album is because no it, it's it's only like go farther in lightness in the respect that it is in fact a gang of youths album that said i have had five very long years with go farther in lightness uh i've <laughs> there was a point where like a year after that album released i would just listen to the opening track of that record over and over and over again without listening to anything else just because i loved it so much but like, you know, it's obviously it's difficult to, you know, the follow up of something that you love. We've made that abundantly clear. But 
it's just that these albums are so dense and full of really powerful and quite extra emotions that this is something that is totally antithetical to how people talk about music and especially how we talk about music as much as I think you all have done a, a tremendous job of unpacking all of the reasons why this is fantastic. It doesn't do justice of letting you live with the record so that it can soundtrack parts of your life so you can find moments in which you really connect with these songs because of the weirdly universal way they're able to portray very singular experiences which like the, the it's it's like the spiritualism I think on this album that really gets me is that it's not like it's very much based in a culture and uh, a lived experience that is very far removed from mine but at the same time it doesn't feel unrelatable it doesn't feel unattainable and it doesn't feel like it's difficult to connect with but that the the raw density is still something that like Basically, what I'm trying to say here is that my opinion of this album right now is almost useless. Like, ask me in a year and I'll have an essay written about this thing, because that's exactly what happened with Go Farther and Lightness. Yeah, I love that album when it came out, but I loved it 95% more two years later. And I know that's kind of a cop out to say, but like, it is what it is, you know, and especially because I found this almost emotionally impenetrable because of the subject matter. Um, because uh, unfortunately, I am somebody who has had the experience uh, that is spoken for on this album, not to a T, but uh, finding out that you have uh, another family and then dealing with, you know, reconciling with people and who you have lost or, or never had or, you know, opinions of other people. It's, it's, I felt a part of my own lived experience spoken for that I, I've never heard in anything else. And it was uncomfortable for me, as weird as that sounds. I know that I'll, I often, and we often talk about how meaningful it is for us to find like relatability in pieces of art like this, where it's just like, oh, uh, you know, this, you know, it, it brought my soul peace. And in some respects, that's true. But it's also like this is in this is such a beautifully written record that displays the pain and the the multiple dimensions of like it's not just about pain. This is an album I would almost describe as overwhelmingly euphoric for about 85% of it, which is comforting, but it's also like, you know, trying to reconcile with that really fragile part of yourself that everyone is is trying to, to to make into this big grand thing is a personal journey and it leads to the fact that it's just like this album sounding the way that it does and it, it every time I listen to it I feel like I'm about to shatter into a million pieces it, it fills me with like a weird energy that I can't really explain uh that go farther and lightness does too uh and I guess it's that like I really admire the direction that they went in making this like that you just wouldn't get a song like Unison on Go Farther and Lightness. It's just fucking impossible that they're the the way this band has grown without seemingly releasing any material since then just show, goes to show you how purposeful and how intentful everything is and how careful it all is. And that's why I have to co-sign Riley's like listen to this band because I I feel like we really rarely get artists and groups who make these things that's almost out of necessity rather than being driven 
by, you know, not that it's bad to creatively push yourself constantly, but I feel like we get a lot of artists who maybe push themselves a little bit too far to get caught up in the minutia of the instantaneous nature of the world that we live in. Whereas it feels incredible that we can get this huge operatic, polished, messy, emotional thing that was no doubt slaved over both like in the bravery that it took to write it and in the difficulty it is to display the, the instrumental skill. I mean, my God, the rhythm section on this album is just unfucking real But the fact that that's something that can happen, but only because someone really, really wanted to make it. It's not because they needed a new album cycle. It's like, no, this is the rare opportunity where it feels like this is a moment that this band carved out for themselves. And I really think that that needs to be something that's more appreciated now because it's very, very rare. Um, and it's just a perspective that you don't often see. My like, like scores and ratings, this, this shit doesn't matter with albums like this. It really doesn't. I'm, I'm going to listen to this album a lot. I basically love every song here, even though I think there are songs that take a while to get accustomed to. Shit like Returner is something that, I'm still not fully on board with, but it doesn't stop me from feeling a weird amount of infectious joy and in singing along the with the, you know, we're all in it for the money. I don't I don't know what exactly it is that feels it, it feels like something that's off of Go Farther and Lightness. It feels like it's a musical number almost, but there's a there's a weird tangible setting that that song is grounded in that makes it stick out nearly on a kind of like, whoa, what is this when you first hear it and then you hear it over and over again and it just kind of makes more sense but like it's just difficult to put myself in the headspace where I can properly engage with this and simultaneously enjoy it for the incredibly immense musical powerhouse that it is it's it is a very very special album and if you if our listeners have ever like taken anything that we have to say seriously. I know that Go Farther and Lightness review that we did was way on in the inception of this podcast. But so a lot of people might not have even seen it who join us since. But like, if you value what any of us have to say, please go listen to this. Please go listen to Go Farther and Lightness. Please. It doesn't matter if you don't think you'll like it. They need more. We need yes. more art like this in the world. Period. If you if you if you go and listen to this album, I'll suck your dick. I'll suck your fucking dick, man. <laughs> Actually, real quick, I just wanted to quickly talk about one song that we didn't I don't think we mentioned yet, which actually might be my favorite song on the album, which is the track Forbearance. Forbearance. Just yep. a beautiful song. And um the, it's so interesting that like you know they've had this like rock sound for go farther and lightness for the positions as well which by the way go listen to the positions as well if you haven't because that's a beautiful record but it's interesting that this song takes an almost like i think he even mentioned like fat boy slim type beat <laughs> oh like, yeah almost, the almost drum and bass like the influence of late 90s yeah. techno big beat music is super and that's shit i was born and raised on like yeah, that yeah. the influence of and that is it's fundamentally fucking ridiculous to even attempt something like that and they make it sound perfectly natural mm. exactly like when you hear about like because thematically this song 
I alluded to this earlier, it's about the events of that song Magnolia from the positions where he attempted suicide. And the song relates to his father. And he says, like, I wish I would have said a proper goodbye before even attempting something like that. And just heartbreaking lines like in the world, the world is not done with me yet. And just an absolutely beautifully, again, just tragic song with the backdrop of like, like we said, this almost tech 90s techno influence beat that sounds gimmicky when I say it. But if you listen to it, it makes perfect sense. Like, it's similar to a, a song that Dave actually mentioned was the main influence of this song, which I, I heard and I was like, wow, this is an incredible song. It's David Gray's uh, Please Forgive Me, which is a song that is sung in like this kind of soft, like soft, sad singer-songwriter style with the backdrop of like a almost a folktronica style beat. Just the marriage of that instrumental and these, this just undeniable melancholy that the song contains. It makes it one of my absolute favorite songs on the album. Alrighty, let's rate this bad boy. Gang of Yous, Angel in Real Time, favorite tracks, rating. Jake, lead us off. Three favorite tracks. Um, I'm definitely going to shout out to, to Forbearance and unison and my favorite song on the album which is the man himself um vying for a for a top spot on favorite gang of youth songs in general really and least favorite is yeah it's still probably returner just because it's it, it, it sticks out and i'm but i'm also like i don't know man ask me in a year how i feel about this song um and this album because like eight out of ten right now favorite track sir the man himself you in everything and goal of the century no least favorite the prophecy is fulfilled 10 out of 10 hallelujah Hallelujah. my prediction Uh, came true my uh my three favorite tracks are man himself second i will pick brothers and third place is actually going to be tend the garden i want to put that in there because i've talked about how great the song is but one thing i want to mention is just like i've never heard anything in my life that sounds like this song it is like a a rare piece of completely original music like obviously it pulls from a few different like things but in its totality there is nothing on the like what is it there's nothing on the planet that sounds like this song the way it starts with those kind of almost garish synthesizers and those kind of uh, really kind of clubby beats. And then just by the end of it, it's transformed into this gorgeously ornate sort of dreamlike song. It's amazing. It's absolutely one of the most outrageously creative songs this band's ever made. And um, uh, my least favorite is probably Returner as well. Although again, that song has really grown on me. I really love the verse melodies on that song, actually. And the strings are so good. This album's very fucking close to a 10. It's a 9.5 at this stage, but it just gets better and better, man. It's it's this is the, this is the shit. Yeah, 10 the garden. That last verse is one of my favorite moments on the whole record. But yeah, so my favorite tracks. 
see, I feel bad because the man himself is not in my top three, but it's a 10 out of 10 song. So brothers wasn't in mind. What are you going to fucking do? Yeah. So my three favorites are forbearance and then brothers. And then I'm going to go with the angel in eighth Avenue. Just a perfect song in my eyes. Uh, least favorite is Returner, which I wasn't huge on when I first heard it, but like y'all have said, it's it's definitely grown on me, and I to the point where I still I do really like it, but it's still I'd rank it last, you know. I'm gonna give it a nine point five. Oh, sick! Yes, mm. let's go. All right, well that brings us to an average for Gang of Views Angel in Real Time of nine point two. Let us know at home. If you've heard this Gang of Youth record, let us know what you think of it. Let us know what you think of this band in general. If you haven't listened to this record, then go fucking listen to the record. Um, yeah, and we want to hear from you in the comments below. If you're on YouTube, of course, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, check out YouTube and leave us a comment. Hit us up with what you think. We want to hear from you. Uh, if you are listening on Spotify and Apple, please consider giving our podcast a five-star rate and review. That really helps us a lot. If you're on YouTube, please consider liking the video if you have not already and subscribing if you have not already as well. Got to hit 1,200, baby. We are so Come close. On. I swear to God. We are. We're so close to 1,200. 1,197. Oh, fuck. It's, it's happening soon. You could be the one if you're not already. If you want to go above and beyond and support the channel even further, you can hit the join button on our channel page or on the video page. And for just $1 a month, you can support the channel. You can become one of our best friends. You can get your name put in the title call of every video I'll, on the channel i'll get your name tattooed on my ass i mean there you go uh i will not that is that is not legal that is not legally binding but you will also have a priority comment response and if you want to recommend us something to listen to then your recommendation will go to the top of the pile as always though folks rock over london rock on chicago harley davidson all for freedom freedom for all